Acts chapter 21, verse 7. When we had finished the voyage from Tyre, we arrived at Ptolemaeus. And after greeting the brethren, we stayed with them for a day. On the next day we left and came to Caesarea. And entering the house of Philip the Evangelist, who was one of the seven, we stayed with him. Now this man had four virgin daughters who were prophetesses. And as we were staying there for some days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. And coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own hands and feet, or feet and hands, and said, This is what the Holy Spirit says. In this way, the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. When we had heard this, We as well as the local residents began begging him not to go up to Jerusalem. And then Paul answered, What are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be bound, but even to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since he would not be persuaded, we fell silent, remarking, The will of the Lord be done. Lord Jesus, you you said it to Martha that day at Mary and Martha's house when you said Mary has chosen the better part (laughs) and Martha was worried about so many things Lord but only one thing mattered those were your words help us to take that into our hearts this morning the only one thing that matters and teach us what it means to live for that to live for Christ in Jesus name Amen Well, it has begun. The soundtrack of the season. Bing! (laughs) Frank, Nat King Cole, Ella Fitzgerald, Vince Guaraldi, Amy Grant, even Chicago. I don't know what you listen to for your Christmas music. I discovered yesterday for you 70s Southern rock aficionados that Leonard Skinner has a Christmas album out. You can pick that up. A Leonard Skinner Christmas. Doesn't it seem like if you're a recording artist, it's almost compulsory that you put out a Christmas album? And to my way of thinking, as I listen to some of this music, and I love all kinds of music, and we have all kinds playing in our house, it produces the strangest combinations of voice and faith, or lack thereof. It's so strange to hear some of these artists who the rest of the year have zero or no faith at all. Or if they have faith, you wouldn't have any idea based on how they're living their lives. And yet around Christmas time, suddenly they're singing of the babe in the manger. And you got to wonder, what is up? The two hottest selling Christmas crooners this year on iTunes are Michael Buble and Justin Bieber. Buble is a self-avowed agnostic. And Justin Bieber is, well, Justin Bieber. (laughs) And when I hear them and others like them singing, This, this is Christ the King, whom shepherds watch and angels sing. I gotta wonder. When I hear them sing, The hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight. I wonder, do they know? Or when they sing that profoundly confessional final line of Silent Night, Jesus, Lord at thy birth. Jesus, Lord at thy birth. I gotta ask, do they know of whom they sing? Do they get it? Do they consider the incarnation of Jesus. Glenn just mentioned the Word, the Logos, the Word of the Cross. Well, the Logos of the Cross is Jesus on the Cross. And the Logos was made flesh and dwelt among us. It's a stunning truth in the history of the world that God put on human flesh. Do they know when they sing these things? Emmanuel, God with us, born of a virgin in Bethlehem, Now, my purpose this morning is not to get into celebrity faith. But I want to think about truly what it means to give voice to our faith. 
to speak our faith, to sing of our faith, to declare our faith, and to live by it. Paul said in Colossians 3.16, Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. With all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Jesus said in Matthew 10.27, What I tell you in the darkness, speak in the light. And what you hear, whispered in your ear, proclaim upon the housetops. There's a little different take on up on the housetop. Click, click, click. And when Paul finally got it, when he realized what his life was for, when Jesus brought the word to bear on this man's heart, his entire life's purpose became about giving voice to that faith, voice to that truth. Paul was a man who was bound and determined to go to heaven. Are you? You know, you have a say in this. You have a say in your heavenly journey. You can choose to be bound and determined for the gates of heaven. Paul said in 2 Timothy 4 verse 7, I fought the good fight. I finished the course. I have kept the faith. He said, in the future, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Yeah, we know, Rick, you've quoted that verse many times. And I will quote it many times again. To be among those who love his appearing. If the Lord should tarry, and we are here ten years from now, may we still be looking forward to the imminent return of Jesus. If 30 years were to go by, and I can't even imagine they will, we would still be here proclaiming the second coming of the Christ. Looking forward to and loving His appearing. That's what it's about. It's why we're here. It's what we are looking forward to. And I am bound and determined to be there. Now, I I realize... It's a bit early yet to be talking about resolutions. I get it. But this is something I do not believe can wait until January 1st, 2016. Can you say, resolved, I will go to heaven. Resolved, I will be found faithful. Resolved, I will be with Jesus. It's not a roll of the dice. It's not, well, kind of hope I'm there. Well, maybe if I'm lucky, well, maybe if I do just enough good things, man, that's bogus thinking. Resolved, I will go to heaven. I am going to be there. Paul never released a Christmas album. But his determination, his resolve builds in his life to an absolute crescendo through the rest of the book of Acts. In fact, as we pick up here in chapter 21, we start to hear the drums. We start to hear the music swell as Paul's life becomes a life of such absolute determination that nothing will stand in his way, even his own death. A man bound and determined. And I want to show you a little bit of this this morning. This almost changing course. Not not a changing course because this has been the course of Paul's life the last several years as we've studied through Acts. But suddenly it's as if now he is set. Now he is going down this road. Now he knows the end is near of his own life. Though it would be at least four, maybe five years off. He is a man bound and determined for heaven. Now, before we get to back to our text in Acts 21 this morning, we need to make a couple of quick stops. So I want to go back to Acts 19. Go back two chapters. Where we find Paul on his third missionary journey. And he's in Ephesus. But it's here we begin to actually audibly hear the determination of Paul swelling as with music. Chapter 19, verse 21. It says, after these things were finished, Paul purposed in the Spirit to go to Jerusalem after he had passed through Macedonia and Achaia, saying, after I have been there, I must also see Rome. Paul purposed in the Spirit. I love that phrase. 
can you say like Paul, I have purposed in the Spirit to see Jesus. Now it sounds good. I purposed in the Spirit to be here this morning. I purposed in the Spirit to be focused on the Lord day by day in my devotional readings, in my prayer life. I have purposed in the Spirit. But, but how exactly do you do that? What does it mean to purpose in the Spirit? Well, the word there, purpose, is tithemai. And, and tithemai means to lay something down or to put something aside with resolve. Okay, to purpose in the Spirit means to lay down my will in favor of His will. I may want to go this way. My life may want to tend to pull me in this direction. My selfish nature might say, this is what Rick wants. But to purpose in the Spirit is to say, regardless of what I may want, I'm going to do what He wants. It may look different than what I think is good for me than what my personal desires are. But I have purpose in the Spirit, Paul says, to go to Jerusalem. I have laid aside my will, my determination for my life, and I want His determination. I have purposed in the Spirit. Now what's interesting to me is Jesus uses the same word to define the will of God for His people. He says in John fifteen sixteen, You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you. Tithemai purposed you that you would go and bear fruit and that your fruit would remain so that whatever you ask of the Father in my name He may give to you. Jesus' purpose for you is that you are appointed to bear fruit for the kingdom. He already has a purpose for you. He had a purpose for you 2,000 years ago. And for you to be purposed in the Spirit is for you to lay down your purpose and pick up His purpose for your life. It's that simple. It's to choose Jesus over self. I purpose in the Spirit. He appoints His purpose in my life. And so Luke recognizes here in Acts chapter 19, Paul laying down his own will, Paul purposed in the Spirit. Paul determined by the Spirit, in the Spirit, to go to Jerusalem. Our second stop is at Miletus place called Miletus. Paul is on his way now back toward Jerusalem from his third missionary journey. He doesn't have time to stop in Ephesus. He knows if he stops back in Ephesus that he's going to be stuck there for a while because he loves that church. He loves the fellowship there. But he purposes to get back to Jerusalem for Pentecost. He's, he's kind of charging back to Jerusalem for that feast. And on the way, he stops off at a place called Miletus. But his love is so great for the church at Ephesus, he calls for the Ephesian elders to come meet him at Miletus. It's about a 20-mile journey down the coast. So from Ephesus, the elders come down, they meet up with Paul at this place, Miletus, and it's an emotional farewell. We actually studied it on Wednesday night. If you heard, oh, there was prayer and worship, so you didn't come Wednesday night, you missed a study. We went ahead and we did Acts chapter 20. And it's marvelous, and I encourage you to go back and listen if you haven't heard it yet. But in the midst of this emotional, tearful farewell filled with with hugs and and, and joy and sorrow among the Ephesian elders because they're not going to see Paul anymore, Paul says the following, chapter 20, verse 22. And now, behold, bound by the Spirit, I am on my way to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. Except that the Holy Spirit solemnly testifies to me in every city, saying that bonds and afflictions await me. Think about that. Every single place Paul had been on this missionary journey, someone by the Spirit had said to Paul, if you go back to Jerusalem, you will be bound. If you go back to Jerusalem, you will be in chains. Now the first time Paul heard that in another city, he might have gone, huh. The second time... He might have gone, wow. The third time, I would imagine Paul began to get it. God is sending a clear message through all these different people to Paul that he would be bound when he returned to Jerusalem. And he didn't slow down. In fact, he picked up the pace to get back to Jerusalem. He says in verse 24, 
I do not consider my life of any account as dear to myself, so that I may finish my course and the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus to testify solemnly of the gospel of the grace of God. He had purposed in the Spirit, and now he's literally bound by the Spirit. He has so abdicated his own will that he is bound in the Spirit to be bound in Jerusalem. He's going to see this through. I love that about Paul. I love that he wasn't looking ahead to Jerusalem. He wasn't looking ahead to Rome. That wasn't his final destination either. These were only stops along the journey home. It's a weird phenomenon in my life. When I first started into ministry, I was always looking to the next place. I always had eyes to the horizon. And you can ask Cheryl, it drove her nuts. We'd come to a new church, the very first church that I was hired at in Federal Way, Washington. I was a youth pastor, completely green, had no idea what I was doing. I think we were at that church about a month before I started talking to Cheryl about what the next place might be. And then we moved to the next place. Three years later, we moved to Virginia, where I picked up a youth pastorship there at a church in Virginia, and we spent three years there. But I had been there about a month, maybe two, before I started saying to Cheryl, I wonder how long we're going to be here, because I have a feeling God's got something else in store for us. Three years later, we moved back to California. A youth pastor there for five years. I really enjoyed it, but I think about three or four months into that ministry... And then we moved up here, and I began to serve, as I've shared with you all, with my brother in a church in Anacortes. About two weeks into that ministry, <laughs> I'm like, I'm not here long term. My poor wife, God bless her. And then the Lord called us to start the bridge. And it's really weird. I think you guys are stuck with me. <laughs> Because there's only one place I see beyond here. I see heaven. And for the first time in my ministry life, going back about 12 years now, for the first time I began to realize all those other stops were not final destinations. That the final destination is heaven. Is Jesus. And I've been living my life since then in that direction, not perfectly by any means, not not faithfully by any means, but trying to live that direction, bound and determined to see Jesus for the final destination to be home in heaven. And this is Paul's heart, his attitude. Titus 2 verse 11, he says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. Isn't that good news? We keep talking about the good news really is good news. It's a fantastic, wonderful, marvelous, joyful message that we have for this world. Don't shrink back from declaring it. It's good news. The message is for salvation for anyone who would believe in Jesus. And then Paul says this, and listen carefully, he says, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age. And verse 12 doesn't sound like a lot of fun. I love verse 13. But verse 12 is this call to righteous living, this call to holiness, this call to uprightness and and sensibleness. I don't want to be sensible. You know, the kid in me wanted to play. And it hit me that when we do verse 12 for the sake of this life, it is just sweat on the roadside. But when we are bound for home, it is strength for the journey. It's a completely different mindset. Let me read it to you again. Think this through with me. Titus 2.12 Paul says he is instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age. If I'm doing that simply for life in the present age, that's a drag, man. It is. That means I'm denying myself all these pleasures and all these things that I want. Man, if I'm just doing it for this life, what a bummer. But if my eyes are fixed on heaven, if I'm bound and determined to the kingdom, this age means nothing. You know, the next movie, the next drink, the next taupe, none of it is worth a dime. When I'm looking to heaven, I'm saying, yeah, but look where we're going. 
Here doesn't matter anymore. And so, living righteously and sensibly and godly in the present age, man, that's not a hard thing to do when I'm living for heaven. It is a hard thing to do if I'm living for this age. Being churched, being a Christian, being religious, if it's about this age, you're going to be sweating on the roadside. But if it's about that age, if it's about being with Jesus, looking forward to heaven, man, now we're like runners who see the tape. Suddenly there's the finish line. And all the sweat and the toil and the work, man, it it doesn't feel like sweat and toil and work anymore. I know I've told this story before. It's my favorite story from track in high school because I won. I was running the 400 meter. And it was killing me. I mean, it was just killing me. And I, I came around the final turn, and I, I, and there was a guy who was my main competitor in our league, and he was coming right around the side of me and about to pass me. And I remember thinking at the moment, I don't have the strength to beat this guy. He's going to pass me and blow right on across the finish line. We came around that turn, and I'm fighting, and I'm sweating, and I'm straining to hold him off, and then I saw the tape. And I don't know what happened, gang. I think the Holy Spirit overcame me. I was baptized in the Spirit right there on the track. (laughs) Because I exploded, and I left him in the dust, and I crossed the tape, and I got my best time ever. And I can attribute it to one thing that day. I saw the tape. And when I saw the tape, something welled up within me and a strength I did not know I had filled me and I took off, man. And that's what Paul's talking about because in Titus 2.13, he says this, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Christ Jesus. All the work, all the sweat, all the toil, all the determination. Man, suddenly I'm filled with a new strength when that determination is filled with a vision of Jesus. When I'm looking to the finish line. Are you bound and determined to go to heaven? Amen. Bound for that day. Bound to see Jesus. Because if you are, no amount of change in this life will be a problem to you. Now, we come to the story before us. Chapter 21. Let's start in verse 1 and work our way up to it. Acts 21, verse 1. When we had parted from them and set sail, we ran a course straight, uh, ran a straight course to Coos Bay, <laughs> and the next day to Rhodes, and from there to Patera. Having found a ship crossing over to Phoenicia, we went aboard and set sail. When we came in sight of Cyprus, leaving it on the left, we kept sailing to Syria and landed at Tyre. For there the ship was to unload its cargo. After looking up the disciples, we stayed there seven days. So now Tyre is up in Syria on the coast there, uh, north of Israel. We stayed there seven days, and they kept telling Paul through the Spirit not to set foot in Jerusalem. Okay, he's heard this before. Right? Several times. And now he comes to Tyre and they're saying, don't go to Jerusalem, Paul. Don't you do it. And note this, underline this, be aware of this. They kept telling Paul through the Spirit not to set foot in Jerusalem. Now there seems to be a contradiction here. Because if you think back to Acts 19, hadn't Paul purposed in the Spirit to go to Jerusalem? If he had purposed in the Spirit to go to Jerusalem, but now the believers in Tyre are telling him through that same Spirit, don't go to Jerusalem, how's that work? Is the Spirit telling him to go or not? If he's purposed in the Spirit, but now these believers are saying by the Spirit, no, don't do it. What's going on here? These disciples rightly understood the warnings of the Spirit. Paul rightly understood the intentions of the Spirit. The warnings and the intentions. The intentions are, the Spirit is telling Paul, I want you to go to Jerusalem. But the warning is, however, know this, when you get there, you're going to be bound. The Spirit wants him to go, but the Spirit wants him to be aware of what he's facing, of what he's coming to. 
And that is so valuable. Because Paul's not being lured into a trap. The Spirit didn't purpose in Paul and then suddenly start to trick him by not letting him know what was coming. The Spirit leads Paul. He is bound by the Spirit, he says, to go to Jerusalem. And yet at the same time, the Spirit is letting him know exactly what he'll face when he gets there. He's not being enticed to march blindly into the old city against his will to his own arrest and his own demise. There's some theology there, I think, that Paul had a choice in the matter. That the Spirit was making it clear, this is what's coming. I want you to go, but this is what is coming. And how gracious is a God who makes the choices clear for everybody who follow Him? Hey, there will be sweat on the roadside. And there will be blood for some and tears for other. (laughs) Blood, sweat, and tears. There will be challenges before you should you choose to be bound and determined to see Jesus. But again, you look straight through those as Jesus was described for the joy set before Him endured the cross. Hebrews 12, 2. He was able to look straight through the pain of the cross and see the ultimate victory. That's our calling. That's what it means to be bound and determined. And He always makes sure we know what choice we're making. Should you choose to be bound and determined to be a disciple of Jesus, a follower of His, He says, Matthew 8.20, Listen, the foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay His head. So don't assume that you will. Matthew 10.22, He says, You will be hated by all because of My name. But it is the one who has endured to the end who will be saved. Follow me. People are going to hate you for it. But you're going to be saved. And Jesus says in Luke 14.27, Whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. And again, you Bible students know this, to say whoever doesn't carry his own cross... When Jesus said that, there wasn't 2,000 years of little crosses and t-shirts and logos to get in the way. When He said, if you don't carry your cross and follow Me, all the Jews of that day had was a picture of Jews carrying their cross out to their crucifixion. Bloodied and broken and battered and crucified. And Jesus says, unless you're willing to do that, you can't be My disciple. He says, for which one of you, Luke 14, 28, When he wants to build a tower, does not first sit down and calculate the cost to see if he has enough to complete it. Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who observe it begin to ridicule him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. Will there be Christians who began to build and were not able to finish? Those who started out the journey... But for whatever reason, we're not bound and determined to finish the journey. Jesus says, count the cost. Think it through. It's going to be hard. There will be trials. There will be challenges. By the way, not the same as the challenges of the world. Everybody has sorrows. Everybody in the world has tragedies. The difference for the Christian is sorrows because you choose Jesus. Pain because you follow Him. Tragedy because you have set Him as the Lord of your life. And Jesus says that will happen. just want to be clear with you. So we see the Spirit giving Paul the terms so that he can accurately count the cost. No games, no surprises. And Paul would write to Timothy in that final swan song letter, 2 Timothy, Chapter 3, verse 12, Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. But, note this, the total cost to you and to me to follow Jesus doesn't amount to anything compared to the cost that He paid for your salvation and mine. Verse 5 in chapter 21, after the Spirit is now telling Paul, they kept telling Paul through the Spirit, the warnings not to set foot in Jerusalem. Verse 5, When our days there were ended, we left and started on our journey. 
while they all with wives and children escorted us until we were out of the city. And after kneeling down on the beach and praying, we said farewell to one another. And then we went aboard the ship and they returned home again. So now they're going to sail from Tyre down the Mediterranean coast down to Caesarea. When we had finished the voyage from Tyre, we arrived at Ptolemaeus. That's Acho, which is in the northern part of uh, Israel today. It's above Haifa. They arrived at Acho after greeting the brethren. We stayed for them a day, or with them a day. Verse 8, on the next day we left and we came down to Caesarea. This is Caesarea Maritima, right on the sea there. And entering the house of Philip the Evangelist, who was one of the seven, we stayed with him. Remember Philip? Back in Acts chapter 6, he was one of the seven. We would think perhaps the first seven deacons, although at that point they're not called deacons, but they're put over the widow's food distribution. He's a godly man, a a powerful evangelist. For in Acts chapter 8, we see him going into Samaria and preaching the gospel there. To Samaritans of all people. And they're getting saved right and left. And then the Spirit tells Philip, Hey, I want you to go down to the Gaza Road. So Philip goes down to the Gaza Road. And he sees an Ethiopian sitting in a chariot reading Isaiah the prophet. And and Philip runs up to him. The Spirit says, Go talk to this man. So he goes up and the eunuch says, Can you tell me what this means? He's reading Isaiah 53. Philip climbs up in the chariot, explains the whole thing. The Ethiopian sees water and says, Hey, can I get baptized right now? Philip's like, You got it. They go into the water. He comes up out of the water, and Philip's gone. Philip is raptured right out of there, caught up, moved along. Philip now has settled in Caesarea Maritima. He's been there ever since. He's married, he has four daughters. Four daughters! Which right there, serious props to this guy. Verse 9 says, This man had four virgin daughters who were prophetesses. Now, hang on a second. There's a reason why every verse is in Scripture. And we are told that Philip had four virgin daughters who were prophetesses. That tells us two things about these girls. They were prophetesses and they were virgins. Which is a choice too, you know. Younger people, being a virgin is a choice that you can make, even in this culture, in this society, that says you just go to bed with whoever you date. These four prophetesses were all virgins. They had made that choice. Philip brought up these four passionate prophets like himself. And I suggest to you that these girls were all four virgins because they were so devoted to their ministry. They're called prophetesses, not spinsters. (laughs) There's a difference. It's not that they couldn't get husbands. It's that they were so devoted to the Lord. And I pause on this one simply because the world looks at virginity as though it were a problem. The Lord... Jesus looks at virgins and He sees purity. And He, I believe, takes pride in them. Younger people, and I know there will be probably more younger people in the next service, but listen, don't be foolish with the gift of virginity. Don't be foolish with it. From the condition of virginity, you have the freedom to make pure, undefiled, clear-hearted choices. Once you cross over, you're in kind of a different place. You can be forgiven if you've committed fornication, if you've committed adultery, if you've sinned in that way. The Lord can forgive you and cleanse you and make you whole, and yet you will lose something that you cannot get back. Les likes to say, once the bell's rung, you can't unring it. <laughs> and it's absolutely true. So these four virgin daughters, it's impressive. Something else to know about Philip and his daughters, we're told by a, a man named Papias. Papias was a disciple of John the Apostle. And Papias tells us that Philip and his daughters moved from Caesarea up to Asia... And there they became, quote, highly esteemed as informants on persons and events in the early years of the church. That is, they were the go-to sources of church history. 
Which is interesting because Luke will stay for two full years there in Caesarea as, as Paul is going to be there. They'll go down to Jerusalem. They'll come back up. We'll see this. They'll be in Caesarea for two full years as Paul is imprisoned there. Luke stays there probably with Philip and his four daughters who know so much about what has taken place in the church. Who have so much to tell and so much to explain. And many commentators believe that Luke relied on them for substantial portions of his double album. The Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts. Well, verse 10. As we were staying there for some days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. I love his name, Agabus. Hagab in the Hebrew. Agabus in the Greek, it means grasshopper or locust. He comes down, he's not trying to bug anyone. And he wasn't winging it. (laughs) I love Agabus because he is a real old school, Old Testament style prophet. The way he does things is like what we've seen in the Old Testament Scriptures. We already met Agabus back in Acts chapter 11, verse 28, which says, One of them named Agabus stood up and began to indicate by the Spirit that there would certainly be a great famine over all the world. And this took place in the reign of Claudius. Prophecy declared, prophecy fulfilled. Agabus is legit. We know he's legit because he meets God's standard for legitimacy as a prophet. God's standard is simple. It's a standard, by the way, I believe should be applied today as well as in the first century as well as in all the previous centuries combined. God's standard for the prophet is this. They have to be right. If they're wrong, even once, they're not a prophet. Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 22, when a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the thing does not come about or come true, that is the thing which the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. Oh, I know we humans never speak presumptuously in the name of the Lord. Ever done it? I think God's telling me to tell you exactly what I think you need to do. The prophet has spoken presumptuously. You shall not be afraid of him. It's all about track record. And Agabus has one. He's already prophesied correctly. So here we go again. Verse 11. And coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, this is what the Holy Spirit says. In this way, the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. We have a hand-binding prophecy. Three things to note in our story. You're just now getting to the point? Of course I am. Three things to note. Number one, this is a hand-binding prophecy. Agabus doesn't bind up Paul. Agabus removes Paul's belt, his sash, and takes it and apparently sits down there and binds his own hands and feet. And in that position, looks up and says, this is what's going to happen to the owner of this belt, which is Paul. You go to Jerusalem. You're going to be bound literally. Again, it's old school style prophecy. Like the old Hebrew prophets. Think back. First uh, Kings chapter 11. Prophet by the name of Ahijah. Ahijah tore his brand new Nike Christmas robe. His brand new robe. He took it and he tore it into 12 pieces. And he hands 10 pieces to Jeroboam. And he says, this is what's going to happen to the United Kingdom under Solomon. It's going to become a divided kingdom. And you're going to get ten pieces of it. Two pieces will be the southern kingdom of Judah. Judah and Benjamin. All the other ten tribes of Israel, they're going to belong to the northern kingdom of Israel under Jeroboam. And so there's this very visual kind of graphic prophecy. And we see this take place over and over in the Hebrew Scriptures. How about the prophet Isaiah? Isaiah chapter 20 verses 1 and 2 tell us that he walked naked and barefoot for three years as a sign against Egypt and Cush. Let's all together thank the Lord that He's never called me to do such a thing. Can you imagine what would happen to attendance here? 
Mark Twain, uh, he said, clothes make the man, naked people have little or no influence on society. Now, Isaiah obviously was a prophet of substantial influence. What about Ezekiel? I mean, it just gets weirder and weirder. Ezekiel chapter 4, he's told he has to build a mini Jerusalem under siege. So he gets out his Legos and he builds this little mini Jerusalem. And then the Lord says, I want you to lay down for 390 days on your left side in front of this siege. And then I want you to lay another 40 days on your right side. And the whole time all you can do is eat Ezekiel bread. Which you can buy in the store nowadays. Ezekiel bread. They got Ezekiel bread cereal. However, Ezekiel's Ezekiel bread had to be cooked over human dung. I don't think they make it that way anymore. Pretty sure that would be a negative selling point on the cereal box. Cooked over live human... No, anyway. Point is... As strange as it may be presented from time to time, the Word of God is not only powerful, it is self-fulfilling. That the Word of God spoken is as good as the Word of God fulfilled, because the Word of God spoken will be, must be, has been in God's eyes already fulfilled. Remember our definition of prophecy? It's not what might happen, it's what will happen, because God has already seen it happen. He's just telling you what He knows. That's prophecy. And you cannot alter it. You cannot change it. When Jesus says, I am coming quickly, He's coming quickly. When Jesus says, the kingdom will come to this earth, the kingdom's going to come to this earth, gang. Because you cannot alter the Word of God. So this prophecy of Agabus comes along, and it is a binding prophecy. Isaiah 46, verse 9, the Lord says, Remember the former things long past, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is no one like me. Declaring the end from the beginning. And from ancient times, things which have not yet been done, saying, My purpose will be established. Are you purposed in the Spirit? His purpose will be established. And he says, I will accomplish all my good pleasure. Well, this hand-binding, hand-and-foot-binding prophecy of Agabus leads to, secondly, a heart-breaking plea. Look at verse 12. When he had heard this, as well as the local residents, we, Luke says, began begging him not to go up to Jerusalem. And then Paul answered, What are you doing weeping and breaking my heart? And it's interesting how Paul says that. You're breaking my heart here. We might say, you're killing me, Smalls. Paul says, you're breaking my heart. He he feels, and get this, all the brethren around him, Luke's there, and they're all going, Paul, don't go, don't do it. Stay with us here. You go. It's, it's over, man. You've got so much ministry left to do. So many places we can still go and take the gospel. Don't go to Jerusalem. And during all this Paul's determination, he feels it. By his own words, he feels it declining. He feels his determination weakening because of their tearful appeals. They're wearing on him. And he confesses this as much. What are you doing weeping and breaking my heart? The commentator Findlay says, by breaking my heart, he means trying to soften my will as though they were pounding it like a washerwoman. Obviously that's an old quote. (laughs) They're pounding away at his will. They're bumming Paul out by their begging. They're wearing him out by their weeping. And Paul says, why are you doing this? Now, apply that to us. We may not intend to sap the spiritual strength of a brother or sister. We may not mean to do it at all, at all, but it happens so easily. Ask yourself this question. Does my opinion, does my attitude, does my behavior build up? Or break down the body of Christ? Do I encourage those who are determined to live godly lives? Or do I discourage them saying, Oh, look, I know you've chosen not to do this, but we're both believers. It's cool. Come do this with me right now. And and, and I could give you all kinds of examples. You don't even need them. 
Do we build up the body to this determination we're talking about, or do we tear it down? Will Jesus see me as a bodybuilder or a wrecking ball? Because what we see going on right here, unintentionally, the believers, the disciples, the brethren, they love Paul. So it's not that they don't, it's not that they're intending to tear away at his determination, but they are. That's what's happening. Paul would say to the Corinthian church, 1 Corinthians 10 verse 23, All things are lawful, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful, but not all things edify. Let no one seek his own good, but that of his neighbor. What is the absolute best good that I could seek for Bill? Wouldn't it be his eternal destination? Wouldn't it be His future in Jesus? Isn't that the best good? Therefore, anything that I say to Bill to encourage him along the way, anything I do in His presence, shouldn't it be about building him up to that end? And shouldn't we as the body be that way with one another? Saying what we say, doing what we do, and acting how we act to build up the body for the coming of Christ to be received home to Him. And yet what we see here is, again, unintentionally, the body is tearing down Paul. And one of the main reasons God gave us each other is encouragement. Not encouragement to live and let live, to do whatever you want with your life, but encouragement to live for Jesus. That's why we're here. Hebrews 3.13 Encourage one another day after day as long as it is still called today so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Hebrews chapter 10 verse 24 Let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds not forsaking our own assembling together as is the habit of some but encouraging one another and all the more as you say, see the day drawing near. Were the brothers building up Paul? No. Where are those who are standing up and saying, Paul, I think you need to listen to the Lord here. Paul, go to Jerusalem. The Spirit's telling you to go. Go. We will pray for you. We're with you. Of course it's going to be hard, but God wants you to do it. We're behind you. Where are those voices? Silent. Why? I think they're afraid of losing Paul. You know? He's such a force for the church. What will we do without him? I was having a conversation last night with Hillary Hoffman. We were talking about Mars Hill Church down in Seattle. And some of you know all the things that took place with Mars Hill and how it kind of broke apart and, and divided up into their different churches now that have come out of it. Mark Driscoll, who was the senior pastor of Mars Hill, stepped down and it just kind of it kind of imploded to a degree. Hillary attended there for a long time and fully aware of all the things going on and she was saying last night, you know, but it's such a good thing. I've seen so many people, you know, who, whose faith was on Mark Driscoll, whose faith is now in Jesus. Let's make sure our faith is in the right place. Let's make sure our focus is always on the Lord Jesus. Understanding, and I mean this with love and affection, every single one of us are expendable. Every one of us. Years ago, I think it was Clark who, who mentioned that someone was having a conversation. I think it was after I'd had one of my heart issues. This was a long time ago. And someone was asking, what, what, what will happen if, you know, what if we lose Rick? And I'm like, first of all, let's not get the cart ahead of the horse. <laughs> what if we lose Rick? God's got another plan. God's got something else in mind. What if we lose Rick? <laughs> It, you know, it, honestly, it's comical to me. If you lost me, you'd be just fine. You might be better off, actually. We keep the focus where it belongs, on Jesus. Not on Paul. Not on Apollos. Not on Cephas. What are they? They're just fellow workers. Christ is the foundation. He is the focus. And some might say, again, what about Agabus' prophecy? Even the Spirit is warning, warning Paul not to go, right? Wrong. We talked about that. The Spirit wasn't telling Paul, don't go. He's just telling Paul what's going to happen when he gets there. Just giving him fair and open warning. In fact, it's Jesus doing what He promised to do for Paul at the very beginning of His calling. Acts 9.16 I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. 
And Jesus did. All along the way, I think ahead of time before his ministry started, and here we see throughout his ministry, Jesus saying, now Paul, you're going to be kicked out in the next city. Paul, you're going to be whipped. Paul, you're going to be beaten. You're going to be stoned. There's going to be a shipwreck. Paul, you're going to go to Jerusalem. They're going to bind you and they're going to take you off. It's not going to be pretty. I'm going to show you how much you must suffer for my name's sake. I think Paul gets that. Verse 13, continuing on, he says, I am ready not only to be bound, but even to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. Keep your finger there quickly. Jump over to 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, sorry, 2 Corinthians, two books over, three books over. <laughs> 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Quickly jump there. Why quickly? Because I want to preach longer and I don't want to waste time on you turning pages. <laughs> 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23. Now some of you have heard this. Listen again to Paul's description of his ministry. He's really giving testimony as to the life he's lived in Christ against those who would call themselves supposed servants of Christ. There were some who were trying to wheedle their way into Corinth. Paul says, are they servants of Christ? (laughs) I speak as if insane, but I more so. In far more labors, in far more imprisonments, beaten times without number. And we talked about that. That doesn't mean he was beaten more times than he can remember. It means every time he was beaten, they didn't count. It wasn't the 39 lashes of the Jews. It was the countless lashes of the Romans. They beat him until they were done. In far more uh, imprisonments, wait a minute, where am I? Without number, often in danger of death. Verse 24, five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes. So that's in addition to all those other beatings. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I spent in the deep. I have been on frequent journeys and dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my own countrymen, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers on the sea, dangers among false brethren. I have been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights, in hunger and in thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure, apart from such external things, there is the daily pressure on me of concern for all the churches. Who is weak without my being weak? Who is led into sin without my intense concern? And i got to tell you, the longer I'm in ministry, the more I get that. Who is led into sin? without my intense concern. Years ago, when I was studying to go into psychology, and I'm so thankful I didn't, but as I was studying to go that direction, and I was doing internships, and I was counseling, I'm just a kid counseling adults, and I'm like, what am I doing? I don't have a clue. Why are they coming to me? And I remember going home after a a counseling session one night, and there were several times this happened, but I had four back-to-back sessions with four different people. So four hours of counseling with a little half-hour break in between to write down notes and try and figure out what to do with this person. And I went home, and I was shredded. I was exhausted. I remember that night telling Cheryl, I don't know if I can do this. I had no idea how emotionally draining it was to sit and to listen to someone just unload their stuff for an hour and then another hour and then another. So I left behind to uh, go into ministry. (laughs) And as a young man, I didn't care so much. I really didn't, you know. Hey, it's your life, do whatever. And the longer I walk down this road, the more... It matters. And the more that when I see sin, and don't get me wrong, maybe sin that I myself have committed in previous times, maybe struggles that I would face myself, but when I see sin, it's heavy. I see that among our shepherds when we pray together over the body and, and, and issues come up and things are dealt with. It's it's heavy. Paul says, my intense concern. You know, last, last week I made a comment. And, and I just, I want to qualify it. I think it, was, it may have been in second service. I don't know if I said it in first service. But I said something to the effect of, I don't give a rip what your opinion is. 
I don't care what your opinions are. I care what the Word says. And I I went home and thought about that and thought, that might have come off a little stronger than I intended. It's not that I don't care what my brothers and sisters think. It's not that I'm not moved and even motivated by the opinions of my, of my fellow shepherds and pastors and, and, and people in the fellowship. It's not that I'm not open-minded to hear what people have to say. It's just I really don't care at all if someone has an opinion that is other than the opinion of Jesus because those opinions are not going to amount to anything. not going to go anywhere. Only the Word of God will stand. And so I understand what Paul is saying when he says, who is led into sin without my intense concern? It's heartbreaking to see family drawn away. It is heartrending to watch teenagers. Jake has to go through this. We've had this conversation. Teenagers who are so powerful and so into the Lord and following after Him and then just kind of wander off. It wears on you. Paul says, I went through all of this to see... Resolve, weaken, and waver. Paul says that just that just tears me up. He writes in Hebrews twelve, and I believe it was Paul who wrote Hebrews. I always tell you that Hebrews twelve, verse twelve. He said, "Therefore, strengthen the hands that are weak, and the knees that are feeble, and make straight paths for your feet, so the limb which is lame." may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. In other words, I know you're going to be lame. I know some of you are going to be lame. But that doesn't mean you can't be healed. It doesn't mean you can't walk again. Who is it that heals the lame other than Jesus? Makes the lame able to walk. Jesus does. So what was it then? Looking at what Paul writes in 2 Corinthians, knowing the the sweat on the roadside of Paul's missionary journeys of his life, what made him willing to be bound even to die at Jerusalem? He said, I'm ready not only to be bound, but even to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. In other words, number three, final point, a heart bound to Jesus. A heart bound to Jesus. That's what did it. Paul would do anything for Jesus who had done everything for Paul. And in verse 14, since he would not be persuaded, we fell silent, remarking, the will of the Lord be done. You see what just happened there? Paul turned the tables. Paul, who was originally bound and determined, began to feel his own resolution weaken. But rather than give in to the brothers and sisters and say, ah, you know, okay, okay, let's not go to Jerusalem. He says, no! For the sake of the name of the Lord Jesus, I will die there if I have to. And what happens to the brethren? They begin to have resolve. They now say, alright, okay. The will of the Lord be done. And suddenly now everybody is aligned with the heart of Jesus. Jesus? Yeah. He's the one who said in John 4.34, My food is to do the will of Him who sent me and to accomplish His work. John 5.30, I do not seek my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. John 6.38, I have not come down from heaven to do my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. John 12, 27, Jesus said, Now my soul has become troubled. What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I came to this hour. In Luke twenty two forty two, in the garden, you know Jesus said, Not my will, but yours be done. See, Paul was bound and determined to go to his death, not because he was some big, courageous, superstar hero guy. He was bound and determined because his heart was bound to Jesus. And that's where Jesus went. I'm bound to perhaps even be crucified. Some think Paul was thinking that. That he might not even get out of Jerusalem alive. He'd be bound there and crucified just like Jesus. And if that happened, so be it. Because he was bound to the heart of Christ. And Jesus said, and listen to this again, Luke 9.23 If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. 
For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake, he is the one who will save it. Why would anybody take up a cross? Because Jesus went first. Note the the key phrase in that calling of the disciple. The key phrase is, follow me. It's not take up his cross. It's not deny himself. That's what we do. But we do it because he did it. Because we would follow him. Follow me. The follow me is the substance of our call. You want to know what it looks like to be a follower of Jesus? Look at Jesus. You know what it means to look like to live a life of a disciple? Look at how the rabbi lived. That's the life that we emulate. That's the life that we pursue. It's the way of the Lord. Which is the root of self-sacrifice. The way of the others centered. The path of obedience. Paul was bound and determined to die for Jesus because Jesus Himself was bound and determined to die for Paul. And for you and for me. If you have time to do this yourself this week, I would encourage you to go back over what we've studied this morning. Especially these sections of of Paul's life and him saying, I've purposed in the Spirit. I'm bound for Jerusalem. I am bound, even, even if I die, to go there for Jesus' sake. And think through the parallels between Paul's life and that of Jesus. I'll give you a couple. Agabus had said, the Holy Spirit says... In this way, the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. Jesus had said in Mark 10.33, Behold, we're going up to Jerusalem. And the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles. Very similar. The friends of Paul beg him not to go. Well, the friends of Jesus begged him not to go, didn't they? Peter said, No way, Lord! This shall not happen to you. Remember what Jesus said, Get thee behind me, Satan. And the whole thing ends with the will of God accomplished. Here's the thing. The closer you get to Jesus, the more you will find your life paralleling His life. Now you can stay far away from Jesus. You can keep Him at arm's length or at a distance and cruise on through life And not be too overly affected by being a Christian. You can be quiet about it. You can keep your voice at a soft level, except when you're around other Christians. You can downplay it. You can cater to the world. And maybe not experience a whole lot of what Jesus did. But for those of you who would be as close as possible to Jesus Christ, The closer you get, the more your life is going to look like His. In the good ways and in the bad. In the glories and in the persecution. In the joys and in the sorrows. The life lived for Jesus begins to parallel Him, just like Paul's life did. Paul said in Philippians 3 verse 8, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things. I count them but rubbish, so that I may gain Christ. And listen again to this verse. I know some of you know this. Philippians 3.10 That I may know Him, and the power of His resurrection, and the fellowship of His sufferings, being conformed to His death in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Rachel, why don't you come on back up? What kind of voice will you give to your faith? Are you determined to go to heaven? Are you bound for the presence of God in Christ Jesus? Will your life build in crescendo to the very moment you see Him? Do you want to see and be with Jesus? Father, Father, we lift our eyes to You now. And my prayer is that we would have vision that is like the vision of Jesus. 
that we would look through our own crosses. That we would look right through our own hardships, our own challenges. That we see right beyond those to the kingdom. That we might, like Paul, be given a glorious vision of heaven. We might take you at your word, Father. You've given us a vision of heaven in the Scriptures. May we constantly be looking for the blessed hope and the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. And by the vision you've given us, live lives of absolute determination, resolute to be there with you. In Jesus' name, amen. If you would have any response to Jesus this morning, I invite you to come forward as we stand up and sing together. If you want to give your life to Jesus for the first time, man, do it today. It's the best journey you can ever take. An eternal journey. If you have something else you need prayer for, please come on up while we stand and sing.